Y'all, I want to say these folks, we had 10 up here today. Um, we don't always have 10, but man, y'all sounded so good today. Thank you. Thank you. And um, some of y'all may not know this, but since last Easter, different folks have been coming and, and leading us in worship. Different folks every week. We're, we weren't always sure. He wasn't kidding about that. Sometimes it gets thrown together. <laughs> um, but man, I, I can't thank y'all enough. And, and these folks have taught me and taught us that God's church is much bigger than one building. Is that right? You know, and they have come from other churches and other places and they work full time. And man, on Wednesday and Thursday night, sometimes it's kind of chaotic in here having a practice and they, they come from jobs. So I couldn't be more grateful to all of those. Um, next Sunday, we are starting with a new interim worship leader, Robbie Lee, who has led worship for us a couple times. House of Thomas, y'all remember? Uh, House of Thomas is not going to be leading worship, but Robbie Lee, the, um, uh, who, who leads that uh, band, is going to be leading us in an interim period. And I told him, we want all these people that have been on stage, we want them back and part of the mix. And so we're going to have them still. And again, just so grateful for y'all and 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 sharing with us, and again, teaching us that God's kingdom is much bigger than just one place. It's a lot of different, so thank y'all so much, but we're looking forward to Robbie and his family coming, and, and helping us out, and, and all those folks back there, um, Mac and Taylor, and Mark, and everybody that, that helps with all that stuff back there, and, and uh, we appreciate y'all so much. Um, well, we're gonna, uh, sorry about last week, um, you know, us crazy southern people lose our minds when it snows, or not. <laughs> it did snow, you know, it did snow. All I could think about is somebody falling in the parking lot or on the sidewalk before they even got in here. Um, so I, I, I welcome the people on um, live stream today. Last week, that was me. I, was, I think I watched three different preachers on the comfort of my couch, and it was kind of nice, you know. Um, but there's nothing like being together, right? It's important for us to be in person together when we can, obviously. Um, well, I want to continue our, our series called Changing Directions. And uh, in 1990, I saw a movie that was, has been one of my favorites. Um, it's called Dances with Wolves. I don't know if any of y'all have ever seen it. Like, if you've ever seen it, you remember because it, it was four hours. <laughs> it's a long one. Now, some of you go, four hours? I know you binge watchers. Y'all stay on your phones and devices all the time, so don't give me that. You watch a four-hour movie. You watch a whole season in one night, something you people do, so I get it. But in this movie, Kevin Cosner was the director and the main actor, and his name in that movie was Lieutenant John Dunbar. And at the beginning of that movie, it was during the Civil War, and Lieutenant John Dunbar is on this operating table of sorts out in the middle of uh, you know, the war that was going on, and they're about to take his leg off, and they cut his boot off, and the doctors are just exhausted. They've already amputated several people, and they finally go, i got to have a coffee break. And so they take a break. And he looks up and realizes they haven't taken my leg yet. He's almost unconscious. And he looks across the way and he sees a guy standing there who's on crutches and he's lost his leg. And he goes, that's going to be me. So sometimes, somehow he musters this strength. And I was going to show the clip, y'all. But as I watched the clip again, there was some colorful language in it that I don't think I could show on Sunday morning. And... Uh, so anyway, but he looks up and he realizes I still have my leg and he musters enough courage to put on a boot and sneak out of that whatever tent for medical tent and go back to the front lines. And he goes back to the front lines and there's the, the northern troops across this big valley and then on the other side are the southern troops and they're just kind of at a standstill. And the camera focuses on all these different faces where they're all just sick of this whole thing of war. 
They've lost so many friends and family, and it's just gone on for years. And so Lieutenant Dunbar joins one of his men, and he goes, what's going on? And he goes, well, nothing's going on. You can see, you see the major over there, and he sees his major, and he's over behind the scenes, and he's just kind of deciding on what we're going to do here. And he goes, and look up on the hill there, and off in the distance you see some generals on horses with those spy glasses, and they're looking, and they're seeing nothing going on. It's just at a standstill at this battle. And so all of a sudden, Lieutenant John, Dun, uh, John Dunbar gets up and he gets this horse and he decides he's going to ride across the two battle lines right in the middle of this, this field here. And the guy with the, one of the generals with the spyglass up on the hill goes, I think we got a suicide mission. And so if you remember, if you saw the movie, he rides this horse across and the southern guys go, this guy's an idiot, we're going to pick him off just like this. And they, everybody's shooting as he rides across the line and he gets to the end and nobody hit him. And he can't believe it. I mean, he was like, I can't just sit here and do nothing, and they're going to cut my leg off. I'd rather just die now. But he makes it all the way across, and nobody hits him. And as he's kind of like, I can't believe that just happened, he reaches down, and he's, he's patting his horse, and he hears all the Union soldiers just cheering, going, yeah. Now, the southern guys are cheering, but it's a little different thing they're saying to him. They're, come on back. Come on back. Do it again. And he's like, I was trying to kill myself, but now I'm energized, and now my guys are energized. So he gets on the horse, and he starts to go back through the gauntlet again. And he starts riding, and they're shooting at him. Southern guys are shooting at him. If you remember, there's this dramatic scene where they slow the music down, and he's on the horse, and he just does this, like, hit me. Come on, hit me. And nobody hits him. And while the Southerners can't hit him, the Northerners are reloading their guns, and as soon as they've emptied all their guns trying to hit this guy, and they don't, they make this full-scale attack towards the southern, and the southern guys are not expecting it, and all of a sudden they're in retreat mode, and it goes on. Now, there's a lot more to that movie because he, he gets uh, uh, an upgrade, so to speak, and gets to move, and it's a great movie. I encourage anybody to watch it. But as I thought about that, sometimes in situations in life like he was in, people see that the uh, direction or the plan of what's going on needs to change. They can't just sit there and say, I'm not going to do anything. I can't just sit here and what's going on right now. I need to change directions. And some people don't change directions, and some people won't change directions. And we know that in our own lives. Some people just wait and hope that something's going to change. I hope something's going to change. I hope somebody else will do something, maybe out of fear, but others say, you know what, I have to do something. I can't sit here. And that's the way he was in this movie they are motivated to change the direction of where the situation's going. They act, even when it's dangerous, even when it's risky. And so today we're going to look at a text from 1 Samuel chapter 14 where King Saul at the time, the first king of Israel, his son Jonathan decides to attempt to change the direction of where nothing's going on. And he can't stand to just see nothing going on, and he acts. And in doing so, the situation changes very quickly, and others are inspired and motivated to join the change. But i got to give you a little background on this scripture to lead where we are today. And again, I say this, I said this in the first service, this Old Testament stuff, I love reading these stories. Now, some of you may go, now, who is he talking about? It may be a little confusing to you. It doesn't matter if you've not read it. What I hope, and I hope every Sunday when I read God's Word, is you go, is that really in there? I hope it inspires you to actually go and look and see if it's really in there, what I'm talking about. You should be doing that. And I hope it inspires you to read and go, man, this stuff is amazing. God's Word, the stories. You know, I know Harry Potter novels and all that, but then there's that even better stuff in there. 
if you'll actually read it. So this is one of those stories where it's, it's an amazing story when we really think about it. But Jonathan is the king's son, and he has led an attack on an outpost because nothing's going on. He knows that God has said he was going to deliver the Philistines to the Israel's hands, and his dad is the king, but he's not doing anything. So he goes and, and attacks this outpost, and the Philistines hear about it, and they're upset. And so they're going to come back towards Israel with a full-scale attack. So they assemble after this has happened with all these weapons and all these men to fight the Israelites. But the Israelites know, man, Jonathan, the king's son, made them mad, and now they're coming full-scale. What are we going to do when they're scared? And fear struck many of them because they were greatly outnumbered, not only in men, but in weaponry. So many went into hiding. Some stayed with Saul, but those who did were, as the text reads, quaking in fear. And so King Saul had been instructed by God through Samuel to wait for seven days, and the, the, the priest Samuel would come and sacrifice burnt and fellowship offerings to God to get further instructions. When he would come, he'd offer these sacrifices, and God would tell us, what are we supposed to do about this army we're facing that we're greatly outnumbered against. But Saul became fearful and impatient. Saul said, I'll come after seven days. Well, it got to be the seventh day, and Samuel wasn't there, and so Saul got impatient. And he decided that, you know what? I'm just, people are leaving. The, the troops are leaving. Everybody's scared. I'm just going to go ahead and make the sacrifice myself. I'm not a priest. I'm not supposed to do that. I know I'm not supposed to do that, but somebody needs to do something, so I'm just going to do it. And as soon as he finished making the sacrifice, Samuel shows up and goes, what are you doing? You know you're not a priest. You know you're not authorized to do that. It's only the priest. Why did you do that? And this was an arrogant thing to do on Saul's part, but it was also clear disobedience to God's instruction that he knew through the law, and it was a lack of faith in God. When he clearly knew the reason behind this, to wait was showing faith. And Samuel relayed God's judgment for Saul because of what he did. He says, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, he's referring to a man after his own heart, David, who will now be the new king. But y'all, that wouldn't happen for about 15 or 16 years. But it's now going to happen because Saul, who was God's man to be leader, is not being who he's asked to be. Now, this was a blow to Saul, obviously, to his legacy, to his confidence going forward. Saul had to decide, I can change directions now and repent and trust God, or I can continue on my own way. And he decided to continue on his own way. But we're going to look at the text and see what happens here. So we're going to look at chapter 14, verse 1, and listen to what it says. Thank you for having that up there. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. See, they've already attacked the one on one side, but now they're going to go to the other one. But he did not tell his father... Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron, and with him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitab, son of Phinehas, and the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes, and the other Senna. One cliff stood in the, to the north toward Michmash, the other toward the, to the south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. 
Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all, of you have in, do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then, we will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will st- stay where we are and we will not go up to them. But if they ask... But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were in. The men at the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor-bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's uh, Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, Muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God. At that time it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul with all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were on the run. They joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel, and the battle moved on on beyond Beth-Avon. Now, I know you're going, golly, that was a long passage. told you, a long movie? I thought it was appropriate to have a long passage to go along with a long movie. But it's, it's an exciting thing, and I want us to kind of unpack this and look a little deeper at this. So Jonathan is probably very aware of his father and his leadership, his father's recent disobedience and this offering of this sacrifice. When he saw it happening, Jonathan was there, and he's like, man, I know dad knows he's not supposed to do that. Why is he not waiting on Samuel? Why is he doing this? He's the leader. I know he saw that. And throughout his life, Jonathan had certainly observed many ups and downs, and now he's experienced what Samuel said to his father, that the kingdom's going to be taken from you. Now, Samuel, I mean, uh, Jonathan may have been thinking, I'm the heir to the throne. I'll be the next king, but my dad has messed this up because of his disobedience and his lack of faith. So through his life, Jonathan has certainly observed these ups and downs in his father's leadership. So how does a son respond when his father, who is the king, has a weak faith, clearly disobeys God and makes bad choices? That's a tough thing, isn't it? Your dad's the king. And this won't be the first or the last time that Jonathan has to deal with his dad's lack of faith and bad choices. But Jonathan's choices and actions are different than his dad's. He seemed to have a strong faith in God and a clear uh, faith in that promise that God had said, I'm going to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines in spite of the odds. Why would he have such a strong faith in that? He knows his foundational background of being God's people. He had certainly heard from Saul Maybe he had heard from his mother 
or numerous others, probably even Samuel, who said, your dad was chosen to be the first king of Israel, and God promised him that God would be with him and help him lead them in Israel's deliverance. We read in 1 Samuel 9 that when God was talking to Samuel and saying, "Here's who tomorrow you're going to meet this guy, and he's going to be the first king. And he said this, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. That man was Saul. God had chosen him, and so Samuel anointed him to be the king. And God had clearly chosen him and said, You are the one that I'm going to use to take over these Philistines. That God has heard your cry. They've been, you've been under their thumb, and he's going to be, use you to be the guy who leads them against the Philistines. And you would think that statement would have been burned in his memory, that God has promised he will be with me. He had been chosen by God to lead the people as their first king. He was the one who would deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. But Saul seemed to have a hard time believing this to really understanding. Jonathan didn't seem to have any trouble believing this. And they both acted in different ways. Both of their beliefs determined their behavior. I want you all to hear that. Both of their beliefs determined their behavior. And the same is true with us today, y'all. What you and I believe determines our behavior and actions, doesn't it? What we believe about God determines our actions. What we believe about Jesus and His life and His death and His resurrection, that determines our actions and our behavior. What we believe about the truth of God's Word determines our behavior. In our culture, we see that all the time. There's people who say, yeah, I know about God's Word. And we hear things in our culture like, oh, well, it was just written by a bunch of men. And we know better. We've progressed. We know what God's Word says about these things, about family and life and culture, but, but we know better. We've progressed. No, you haven't progressed. What was that second song y'all sang? My God is greater, He's stronger, knows more than your God, than you. But we think we're gods in our culture today. And this is, the, where, this is where Saul was. We can identify. He could identify. That's, he was like somebody in our culture who's progressive. And I, I know what God said, but I'm going to go in this direction. I know Samuel's the one that's supposed to do this, but I'm going to do it because I'm the one in charge. And he forgot who really was in charge. Well, Saul had shown that his behavior, he did not trust God. And when confronted by Samuel on this, he was told his kingdom would not endure. It would be taken away from him now. And God sought out someone else, a man after his own heart to lead. And Saul still didn't repent. He was angry. He was bitter. He continued to trust in his own wisdom rather than God's wisdom. And when we read the first part of our text today, the writer gives us some details that we would easily skip over most of the time. And, and I have done it before, and, and maybe you did. And you say, oh, those are those weird names, and I'm glad Craig was reading those because he could butcher it rather than me because I did butcher those names. But they're unfamiliar names. They're hard to pronounce, but they also have much more importance if we really look a little closer, and that's what I want us to do. It says, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah. Who is Ahijah? He was wearing an ephod. What's an ephod? He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. that mean anything to anybody? Well, if you remember at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, Samuel 
was born to a lady named Hannah who thought she could never have kids. And this was a special baby. She prayed for a baby and God gave her. And she was so excited when she finally had this baby that she dedicated that baby, Samuel, to the Lord. And she took him to a man named Eli, who was the priest in Shiloh, and says, I'm dedicating this baby to the Lord's work. And, and he lived with Eli. And you remember one night when Samuel was a very young boy, he was asleep and he heard someone say, Come here, Samuel. And he went into Eli. And he goes, Eli, you called me. He goes, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. A second time, you called me. No, I didn't go back to sleep. A third time, he called me. He says, no, go back to sleep. And he goes, wait a minute. The Lord's speaking to you, Samuel. It isn't me. It's the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Samuel. And he said, when you hear it again, you say, here I am, Lord. And he did. And he told him, I want you to tell tomorrow to Eli His priesthood is going to be torn from him and his sons. He has these wicked sons and they have not obeyed me. And there's going to be punishment. So can you imagine being a little boy and hearing God speak you that judgment to your guy who's your mentor? And the next morning, Samuel goes, so, I mean, Eli said, so, Samuel, what did God say to you last night? You think he wants to tell him? He doesn't want to tell him. He's scared. He goes, tell me everything the Lord said. And he told him, God has seen the wickedness of your sons and you did nothing about it. And he's going to tear that priesthood away from your family and you're going to be punished. And Eli didn't beat him. He didn't scream at him. He just said, the Lord's going to do what the Lord's going to do. But that's how Samuel... So these are these names. And we go back and say, so Eli was the priest and he had two sons. And they were named Phineas, And they were named... Um, there's, there's two of the sons. And these two sons were, were, were very, very wicked men. Hophni and Phineas, And they would come to the worship services where their dad was doing this, and people were supposed to be offering sacrifices, and they would steal part of the sacrifices, and they would do detestable things to people and to men and to women during these worship services. And Saul has not been moving in the direction to what God had called him to do, deliver his people to uh, the Philistines. He was not on the offensive as Jonathan was. Jonathan had already attacked, and now that the Philistines assembled to fight, Saul was on the outskirts, and he's sitting there with this priest of from Shiloh, which is no longer really under God's grace. And he's got this show going on. What was he doing? In those days, it was customary to assemble under like a, a landmark. And this tree was kind of a landmark. They had all these 600 men. But there was this Ahijah there. He was a priest from Shiloh, and he had an ephod on. Anybody know what an ephod is? In the early Moses law, remember he had a, a brother, and they were supposed to wear these special things. Um, and, and, and when you had the ephod on, you were asking God to give us direction on where we go next and the priest would put on the ephod and that meant that we're asking God to tell the priest where we're supposed to go now so he has all this going on but it said he was son of Ichabod's brother Atuab son of Phinehas well why didn't you just say he was the son of Atuab son of Phinehas why do you add Ichabod's brother why does his uncle need to be in there well Ichabod has an interesting name and his name means no glory Craig, you're going all over the farm. Where are you going with this? Well, Ichabod means no glory. That meant the glory of the Lord had left that priesthood. And the glory of the Lord has recently left Saul as king. And so the writer of Samuel was Samuel. And he wants us to know about Ichabod. Ichabod, when he was born, his mother was dying. And as his mother was dying, they came and said, you're... Husband has just been killed. That's what she heard as she's dying, giving birth to her son. And then she heard, and they also stole the Ark of the Covenant. It is no longer with Israel. It is with the Philistines now. And she's hearing this as she's giving birth, and she dies. And so in her last 
word, she says, name him Ichabod because it means no glory. Because in that day, the glory of the Lord left Israel. So why does the writer want to put Ichabod's name in there? He's trying to get us to see the significance here. And I've gone all over the form and I apologize. But he's saying, you've got a priest here with you, Saul, whose the glory has left that priesthood and he has left you. So what are you doing here? Samuel's the one that you should have there with you and you don't. You have this other guy. This is just a show. You're just doing a show. You're putting the ephod on him and you're asking him to come and acting like you're inquiring of God of what to do next. You know what to do next. Your son is doing it. You're doing nothing. You're just sitting there. And you've got the show of the priest and inquire of God. What should we do next? He wasn't really inquiring of God. Saul already knew God's will. He was too afraid or he was too stubborn to go out in faith against the Philistines to accomplish God's will. Jonathan knew God's will too. And Jonathan, instead of waiting around the pomegranate tree with a king and a priest in whom God had rejected, he says, I'm going to do something. He was proactive. He says, I'm not going to stay here in this do-nothing show that's going on, but he moved forward to what God had called Israel to do, and that's the defeat the Philistines. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. The numbers didn't bother Jonathan. Although it was risky and though it wasn't sure exactly what the next step were, he went forward, seeking God's will in total faith. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Think about it. He left 600 men, his father the king, this priest with only his armor bearer, two guys going up, maybe thousands that are waiting out there for him, but he says, I'm ready to go up. Who does that? Jonathan does. Someone who is completely dependent upon God and has a strong faith in God, who does not care who gets the credit and is laser-focused on God's will and God's calling in their life. Someone whose disbelief determines their, someone's belief who determines their actions. His belief that God could overthrow them determined what his next actions were. And that was Jonathan and his armor bearer. They believed that God would work for his people in response to their faith as he had done repeatedly in their history. Do y'all realize the Philistines knew about the God of Israel? And when they started winning, and they said, how are they winning against us when we have all the best weaponry and lots more men? They said, it's their God. Remember what he did in Egypt, all those plagues? Remember how he parted the Red Sea? Their God is really with them when they are faithful to him. And the Philistines even knew this. So they crossed over towards the enemy, Jonathan and his armor bearer, and were spotted and got the confirmation they needed to move forward. And they did. They climbed up to fight the Philistines because in faith they believed that God was with them. And a panic was sent by God. And again, the writer of this says it was sent by God. And the Philistines started fighting each other and retreating. And Saul and the rest of the troops got involved. Oh, hey, there's something happening. Oh, we're winning. Let's jump in. Well, that's easy to do when you've just been sitting there doing nothing. And it was written in verse 23. After all that went on, yes, Saul jumped in on it and all his 600 men and people started coming out of the caves and even some that were on the Philistine side started turning. But it says in verse 23, on that day, the Lord saved Israel. Not Jonathan, not Saul, the Lord saved Israel. But Jonathan knew that, that's why he acted. So what is all this crazy story? And I know you're still going, what was he doing with those name things? What belief in your life 
What belief in my life right now is determining the direction of where we're going? That maybe needs to change directions. Maybe it's something you've heard from your own family. Maybe it's something you've heard for years and years, but you need to change that direction. Does your beliefs and your actions center around God's direction for your life, or is that even on your radar when you make decisions about your life? Oh, I believe in God, and and if I hear that one more time out of people in our culture, I want to scream. Oh, they believe in God. You know, God's Word says that the demons believe in God and shudder. Simply because you have a knowledge of God does not mean you have a relationship with God. And that's what we need, y'all. That's what Jonathan had. See, Saul, it was just this thing. I've got a relationship with God because he chose me as king, but he really didn't have a relationship with God. So our beliefs and our actions need to center around God's direction for our life, and we have to seek His will. Or maybe we're like Saul, and we're in worship today, but it's simply checking the box off. I'm doing the right things. It looks good. Kind of like that priest, having the priest sit next to me with the ephod on, and I'm sitting there and going, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm inquiring of God. I'm doing my thing. And it looks good under the pomegranate tree, but nothing is actually happening. And I hope nobody's sitting here today and nothing's actually happening. I hope through the songs today, through God's word today, that something is happening in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. And Jesus came to earth and endured all the worst of humanity to save me and you from our sins and transform us and give us a a change in the directions of our lives for the better. And if we truly believe that Jesus came to do that for us, our life direction and our behavior should show that, y'all. Not just, I go to this church, but no, the things that I do in my life show that I really have a relationship with Jesus. That's what really matters in the world. And sometimes that means going against your own father. That's what Jonathan had to do. It means going against a priest or a preacher that maybe is not leading you in the right way, like this priest that was with Saul. Going in a different direction. Sometimes we have to to go in a different direction from our friends or our community in order to pursue what God has called us to do in our lives. And man, that's hard, isn't it? It can be very difficult. But Jesus offers always a change of our mind. Jesus always offers a change of our heart and a change of the direction in our lives. But we must authentically, like Jonathan, put our trust in Him. And not just say it, but actually take a step forward to whatever it is He's called us to. So where are you with that today? What direction in your life that you know is like, man, this is not going in a good way. I know I need to change directions, but I'm scared. I'm scared that this is going in a direction it doesn't need to go, but I'm scared to change. Let Jonathan, let what God did in the life of Jonathan and the, the, the nation of Israel on this particular story help change your mind and your heart to what God wants to do in your life. Y'all, I'm not just saying that. I told my girls the other day, I said, y'all, I don't just sit up there and preach that stuff every Sunday. I actually really believe that. I don't always understand it, but I know there is a real God who sent his son to die for us, and he wants to transform our lives. But we've got to let him. We have got to let him into our lives to transform our lives. So this morning, we want to give that opportunity. Maybe there's somebody here today that that needs to change direction in your lives. And y'all, I'm going to tell you something. I know it's, for some of y'all, like, I ain't going up there. 
I'm not going up there. And I understand that. And we've been talking about that. And we're going to start offering in a couple of weeks a place where you can go if you have a decision. Or contact us during the week or, or, or meet with a friend during the week that's here with you that you know knows the Lord. And, and don't just let that be a thought. Let, it, let God continue to transform and work on your life. But we're going to offer that. Maybe there's somebody here today that would like to come forward and give their life to Christ or join a church. Y'all, we are not a perfect church. But we are committed to doing what God has called us to do in the community. And for a long time as church, I believe we do what God's called us to do. And we're open to hearing his voice. But we're also, before the band leads us in this song, we're also going to try to prepare our hearts for communion. We take communion every week here, as those of you who come know that. But if you're here today for the first time, that's what we do. We believe in the early church, that's what they did. And we want to continue to practice that. And we need that. We need to commune with God and say, hey... Among all the stuff that's happened this week, I need to stop and pause and remember that you died on that cross for me. And because of that, I can change the direction of my life. And so we remember with a little piece of bread and a little, uh, little cup with juice in it, Jesus' body and his blood that was given for us so that we could have eternal life and forgiveness and restoration with the Father. If you didn't get one of those packets when you came in, when we're singing this song, you can slip out and get you one of those. And in a, in a little bit, we're going to, after the song, we're going to take that together after a prayer and scripture reading. But let's prepare our hearts then. And if you do have a decision today, I ask that you come forward. But let's stand right now and prepare our hearts for communion with this, with this song.